Resorts, homes and a newly built hospital have been washed away. No electricity, nothing whatsoever. We need to be prepared for the future. I'm just holding on for dear life here. This isn't fun. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? And make sure everyone's safety comes first. Save what for dream. You must ready. Clearing roads, restoring critical infrastructure. Eventually, I know it's going to hit. It's only a matter of time. Helping your community. Helping your family. Helping you. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Hi, I'm Fred Hooper, and this is Pacific Prepared. It's a show all about natural disasters, how you prepare for them, and how people across the Pacific have survived them. Each week we work with local reporters so they get it, they understand what everyone is going through during a disaster. Today, staying safe on the water, we know that a lot of Pacific Islanders travel by boat. It's just the way of life. Some people are worried that safety messages aren't reaching everyone. Also, how the climate and changes to it are being added to traditional Samoan dances. And the impact of climate change that you can't see yet. Why the Pacific could miss out on a generation of possible leaders. That's all coming up. This is Pacific Prepared. Disaster is part of our life. And recovering is also part of our life. As you see, they're smiling despite the devastation. That's how we are. You are listening to Pacific Prepare. If you live in the Pacific, you'll know that getting around often means getting in a boat. That's just how it is. In Solomon Islands, for example, there's almost 1,000 islands. So travelling via boat is bound to happen. Solomon Islands Marine Authority is worried that the early warning messages might not be reaching the people scattered across the country. Pacific Prepared reporter and freelance journalist Gina Kikia has this story. So it's, it's really the question for us how we maybe improve uh, the access to people and ensure that they, they get the information, they understand the information and they make the right decision. And it's a very difficult question for us to respond in uh, if it's effective enough. Terry Neval is the director of the Solomon Islands Maritime Authority, or SIMA in short. SIMA has over the years coordinated many search and rescue missions for people having trouble at sea. In less than five years, Solomon Islands have had two of the worst sea tragedies ever. One, the Envitae Mareho disaster, where 27 lives were lost this month, three years ago, when the ship encountered rough seas caused by Cyclone Harold. The other sea tragedy occurred on U.S. Day a year ago. Fourteen young lives were lost after they encountered bad weather. Obviously, we had accidents in the past due to bad weather, and uh, bad weather was announced in warning, and still some ships are left in bad weather or some small boats left in bad weather, and unfortunately, we lost people at sea. 47 days here. Day and night, body yeah. 47 days at sea without food rations or water, no sight of land, and only the blue sea. Saved by the grace of God was how Webster Anissi described his ordeal. 
Anisi was one of not so many Solomon Islanders fortunate to survive a lost-at-sea experience. Given up for dead by his family, he spent 47 days at sea before being found by the Cascas people of Papua New Guinea. You know, for a time, trouble, anything happened, or you will feel, you know, you know, for a And the second thing is, you know, panic. Because if you afraid, then you panic. But you know, got him any, any good idea or thinking for working out how not by you shall save you. Developing safety messages is one of NDMO's key functions through the National Emergency Operations Center. NDMO has time based for make sure that uh, early warning messages are um, simplified and, and tailored those such where people survey understand him. And this one me for usually supplement him, not a warning share through what Mifala always refer to as what to do information. Jonathan Tafuariki, director of the NDMO. The Solomon Islands Med Services, or SIMS, is responsible for the first three phases of an early warning system. Through its various weather stations that are located throughout the country and through cooperation with local and international partners, SIMS is able to monitor soil, air and oceanic data, including temperature and rainfall changes, as well as changes in wind speed to keep track of trends and variances across these sectors. We know from science that uh, we'll, have, we'll have more and more frequent uh, major events and so we need to be prepared for that. And uh, I know that uh, some land communities, they witness that every day. Everyday life, they know that the environment is changing. When uh, people have doubt or they ask questions because now they are alerted, then they need to call us. They need to reach through the police station directly through meteorological services, it can be the MRCC 977, and then we'll provide the information and the, the advice. For small craft skippers, a lot still needs to be done. A majority of the travelling in Solomon Islands is by small crafts. To cater for the shortfalls, SIMS introduced the raising of flags to notify small craft skippers of weather conditions to allow them to make important decisions before they travel across to another island or the open ocean. The raising of a red flag indicates bad weather, while a blue flag indicates fine weather. The early warning information is usually distributed via radio and digital platforms. Unfortunately, only 3 out of 10 Solomon Islanders have access to the internet, while not many households owned a radio. The reach or coverage for radio is also limited. Government agencies, uh, we plan and we provide early warning, we provide advice. This, this decision is with the master, with the captain. He is the one deciding if he leaves the port or not. In, in some cases, some vessels are safer when they are at sea for bad weather than staying in ports. It's really a decision of the captain. They are the one deciding. So there is no laws for the government to take control and say, no, the vessel don't leave today. So there will be strong advice, uh, directives, to do this and that, but uh, it's the decision of the people that take the boat or take the ship to decide not to leave because it's uh, it's not safe to leave. It's their it's their decision, and but they need to take an informed decision, and to take an informed decision, they need to get the early warnings and understand the information and make the right decision.
Solomon Islands is considered one of the riskiest countries in the world based on its high exposure to natural hazards and limited coping capacity. Between 1940 to 2020, Solomon Islands have experienced 36 devastating disasters. Storms make up 53% of the devastating disasters. Despite the efforts taken by the government and NGOs and development partners, the level of disaster preparedness is considered low at the community level. Improving community preparedness is one of the many priority areas suggested by the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction in its latest status report for Solomon Islands. Pacific Prepared reporter and freelance journalist Gina Kakia with that story. I'm Fred Hooper and you're listening to Pacific Prepared. We need to be prepared for the future. Helping you stay safe. We have built a seawall two times, but it did no good. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. People have been dancing in the Pacific for over a thousand years. And yes, it looks great, but there's also always meaning behind the moves. Telling a story through the dance. And over the years, those stories have changed. They change to keep up with what's happening around them. And that includes climate change. This is a recording from a recent dance performance in Western Sydney by Matavai Pacific Cultural Arts Centre. Hi, my name is Moimoana Schwenke. Um, I'm Samoan and I work at Matavai Pacific Cultural Arts. Moimoana says the dances that they're performing at Matavai have changed over the years. Yeah, so my current work at the moment is at my family's um, Heart and Soul, which is our Pacific Cultural Centre based in Liverpool, Sydney. And it's called Matavai Pacific Cultural Arts. In many languages, Matavai means eye of the water or source of the water. And the meaning for that name was we wanted the place to be a source of culture for young people, specifically Pacific Island people, um, for them to be able to learn about their culture, through dance, through music, through storytelling. Uh, We have seven different cultures taught at Matavai. So we have Samoan, Tongan, Fiji, Māori, Cook Islands and Hawaiian cultures taught. Um, About 400 students enrolled at the moment and we have been running for 10 years out of a a very humble studio in, in Sydney. But in this space we've created a lot of works and specifically Um, towards activism for the Pacific, um, activism about matters that affect the Pacific and climate change has been central to our dances because our dances in the Pacific, many of them are always reflective of the environment so the actions represent the ocean or the land or the animals that thrive on the lands. Um, So we've used those movements to tell story and we've tried to share that all around Australia but also around the world. What was the kind of instigation for Matavai for you to start that? What sort of gave you that sort of, I guess, motivation to think this is something that we need to do? So I was um, born in Samoa. My parents were dancers um, their whole lives when they had me. Uh, so they were representing Samoa uh, in the tourism group around the world. 
We then migrated to New Zealand for more opportunities and New Zealand, it still feels like home because the Pacific population is large and Tangata Whenua is the Māori people, they're the owners of the land and our cultural values are very intertwined so it feels like home still. Um, but then we moved to Australia, to Wollongong. It's a coastal region, coastal city, and there's not a lot of Pacific people. I was the only Pacific Islander in my primary school and then one of two in my high school. So I was feeling like the minority every day. And, you know, even my physical features were very different to those of my peers at school. I'm brown. Um, and that would bring a lot of questions when, as I was a child and I was... I was in primary school. Another thing was I distinctly remember being um, age 12 and turning on the news quite regularly and seeing a chain of stories, a chain of stories framing Pacific people as all of these negative stereotypes. And I'm sure the wide Australian population would know that there's a lot of stereotypes around Pacific people being violent or involved in crime, um, assaulters, thieves. There's always these negative narratives about Pacific people, especially in the media, um, and these slowly filter out in society and the way that Pacific people are treated, um, even today. So we've done a lot of work to counteract these negative narratives, and mainly through dance, um, telling our stories our own way. I just want to ask you about the dances specifically as well. Have they, over these, I mean, they've been around for a very long time, obviously, the dancers. Have they sort of changed and morphed as the years have gone by and, say, things have changed? So, for example, we're talking about climate change, um, natural disasters have increased. Have dancers changed to reflect those, those changing factors that Pacific Islanders are facing in terms of the weather as well? Yeah, so because the Pacific Ocean is so large and there's thousands of Pacific Islands, um, cultures are... Us distinctly different. So in some cultures, like the Tokelauan culture, their dances and their songs have actually been passed down from generations. They're the same dances and the same songs, but it's still about the ocean and the land. Whereas in Samoa, our traditional dance, Siva Samoa, we can still create choreographies today. And a lot of those choreographies that we have um, made at Matawai have been reflective of the changes in the weather, you know, extreme weather patterns, um, king tides, natural disasters, they're all things that affect us and we can reflect this in our dance, you know, we can reflect this through fast movements, through graceful movements, um, but I definitely do think that the songs especially that uh, Pacific people are making, um, they are telling the story of climate change um, because our songs are our history and that's how we record our information. Do you think that in some way helps your communities to be more resilient against natural disasters if they have a, a really good understanding and it's kind of incorporated into their culture then do they have a better understanding of how to become more resilient after natural disasters yeah so for example um, when we teach the dance and the songs we ensure that we talk about the history and what's currently happening so if we're doing a dance about the ocean we ensure that We've done our research on what's happening to the ocean and teach our kids as well because dance can often become recreational and just movements, but we ensure that these movements have meaning. And it's education for our young people, not only in the diaspora, but they can teach their families as well. A lot of people in the islands are still a little bit ignorant to climate change because you know, they're, they're facing their own hardships in the islands, um, being poorer countries and trying to survive. 
I think education with our diaspora can really filter out to the islands as well. But the knowledge holders in the islands, they're, they are already aware of these issues um, because they're the ones caretaking and sustaining the land every day. You came to Australia at quite a young age by the sounds of it. Have you been, have you been able to spend much time back in Samoa since you've been back in Australia? Yes, I have been able to spend some time in Samoa. I try and go every year. Um, the COVID lockdown, when the borders were closed, made that pretty hard. But last year I was able to visit for two months. And actually on that trip, I really tried to make it my mission to learn as many stories um, from not only my family in the villages, but from other villages. So I would go to like the waterfalls or the beaches that have a lot of the legends and the myths re resting on those lands. Legends and myths are our actual history and our actual stories. Um, and they teach us a lot of lessons um, about what our ancestors were like. Um, for example, I went to a village in Savai where I'm from called Falea Lupo. And in that village is where the greatest warrior of Samoa originated, and she was a woman. Her name was Nafanua. She was a warrior woman, and she basically disguised herself as a man and fought in war for the betterment and uh, for the service to her village, her culture, her country. Um, so leaders like her we can look to for answers. Yeah, so there's a Samoan word, tautua. And Tautua translates to service, and that's one of our central cultural values. So cultural values we live by is, of course, love, honour, humility, respect, and especially service. Service to our people, our village and our country. And the legend of Nafanua, our female goddess, she really has inspired me in my own life. I'm actually a fire knife dancer. So um, fire knife dancing is performed with a weapon um, called a nifo oti. And the nifo oti is similar to the weapons that Nafanua used in her battles. Um, so today I kind of reflect on Nafanua's story, fighting, her fighting her battles with weapons. And today we fight our battles with our dance and our songs and our stories. So that's how that resonates with me. Um, so last year I just graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Indigenous Studies and Environmental Humanities. I'm currently working at Matavai, but I'm working at the Australian Museum with the Pacific Collections, and I've learned a lot about the material culture, and these are artefacts from hundreds of years ago. Um, so I'm hoping that all the knowledge that I'm gaining, especially at this To Hell With Drowning conference, I can use going forward in five years, um, specifically for matters affecting the Pacific, hoping that one day Matavai could turn into a Pacific hub in Western Sydney for all the thousands of Pacific people that live in Sydney, and this hub will definitely be a place that we educate about the matters affecting the Pacific, like climate change, um, human rights, um, nuclear testing in our sacred oceans. Um, there's, little, there's just alone Samoans, uh, about 20,000, much more than that, 20,000 in Western Sydney. Um, so it's a place that we can definitely get this education through, and that's what I'm hoping for in the next five years. Yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge the elders that are living in the islands and specifically the elders in Samoa where I'm from because they're the ones that have looked after this land for the decades and centuries for young people like myself to learn about. Um, also like to 
acknowledge the leaders, the Pacific leaders who represent us and fight for us in conferences, even if they don't have to. Um, and then a message to the young people to ensure that they're always of service. Any any talent or gift or passion that they have, that they're wielding it as a weapon to serve their country and their people. Um, and that climate change should be all of our priority right now. Moi Moana Schwenke, a Samoan woman, performance artist, writer, director, environmental advocate and tutor at Matavai Pacific Cultural Arts. I'm just holding on for dear life here. For women, it's always safety first. They are the first responder. You're listening to Pacific Prepared. Climate change is impacting the Pacific right now. There's visible impacts. You can see what's happening. Something that you can't see is the impact to future leaders of the Pacific. Because if climate change stops people from going to school now, there's going to be a gap somewhere in the future. Dubrovka Volodare from ABC's Pacific Beat program has this story. It's a school day, but for Janet Yatiknu's kids, they'll be back home by lunchtime. The problem that she goes to school have a day because we don't have uh, enough food to support them, like the garden, vegetables that we grow all damaged. What we have in the in our home now is just cassava and a coconut milk on top, or just to boil a rice and just a tin of uh, tuna or something like that. Janet Yatiknu lives on the island of Tana in Vanuatu with her five children. In February, two Category 4 cyclones swept through the area, destroying homes, displacing families and uprooting food gardens. The winds have gone, but their damage remains. The road that the children walk to school is just muddy. They can't walk to school every day. It's raining and raining and it's very hard for the children to go to school now. Janet's experience is similar to that of many other families in the Pacific who struggle to send their children to classes after cyclones and other disasters. The data from the report shows that 3.8 million children in the Pacific are at risk of losing access to education due to climate change, disaster and emergencies. Suzanne Legena is from Plan International. So without access to education, the risk is that you're missing out on an entire generation of children and their capacity to contribute to your economy and your society. She says the impact of disasters and learning can be both short and long term. We know that from tropical cyclone Yasa in Fiji in 2021, while there were 100 schools damaged, children are still learning in some makeshift tents. So it can have long-term effects as well. And the education of girls is often more at risk. If your school closes because of an emergency, we know from previous data that at least a third of girls may not return to school. Once they're taken out of school and are put on to, you know, doing chores at home or employed in helping their families in other ways, they don't actually return to school. The charity's Pacific Disaster Risk Management Manager, Josefa Lalambalavu, says missing school and teen pregnancies can in some cases be linked. For instance, in PNG, there are 65 births per 1,000 for girls aged between 15 to 19. And if we look in Vanuatu, there's 66 births 1,000 young girls. 
when girls are unable to return to school due to natural disasters. These are some of the impacts, so their risk of unplanned pregnancy and early marriages increases. Flora Vano in Vanuatu is at the forefront, helping women and children deal with the effects of climate change. She says the report's findings are shocking. Four million is too much. We might probably double that in the next decade because the increase of cyclone it will keep on coming. And I'm scared. I'm really frightened of the words that I'm saying right now because I need people to start realizing that this is not only something written on a report and a paper. This is the reality we are living in. Janet Yatiknu and Tana is hoping their lives can soon return to normal. And that means a full school day for her five children. They need to go to have a full day class because when it comes to exams or at the end of the, of the year, we know our children can, can be successful. But if not, I don't think they'll be successful at the end of the year. Dubrovka Volodair from ABC's Pacific Beat program with that story. And staying with education for a moment, a little while back we heard from some students in the Asawa Islands in Fiji and some of them had been catching a boat to school in the morning. But before they started doing that, they were able to walk. Uh, we have experienced it uh, for year, 12 years ago. And, and, and before cars using to travel from Tamsua to Nambukeru using a good, good road, but, but for now using the track because of this climate change. It has washed out out us of road, some effect of climate change, soil erosion and damage the reef and affect marine life. So who catches the boat to school every day here? Four people, wow. We walk to school, sometimes we come by boat for the, for the boat of the village and travel to school. This is the head teacher at the Ratu Namasi Memorial School, and he's seeing a slow decline in numbers to the school in recent years. My name is Yosef uh, Honigini, and the school head teacher of Ratu Namasi Memorial School. I'm about 47, 49 years old. How many students have you got at the school here? I've got uh, 31 students, and uh, classes from 1 to year 8. Yeah. And it might sound like a strange question to some people, but how did most of the students arrive at school today? Well, the, there are two villages that uh, occupies that uh, come to school. Uh, one is to travel on foot, yep. and the other has to travel by a boat. Uh, otherwise, they travel by a trek, coming along from their village to the school. And there was, at one stage, a road between here and the next village, right, where the boat now travels? Is yeah. that correct, yeah? There was, uh, yes, there was a road that comes from, that goes from the school to the, to the village, Tamsu village. That was in the last uh, 10 years. But uh, right now, all the roads have been washed away, and they're just walking on a trek, which goes up the hill, down to the coast, right the head teacher and some of the students from a school in the Asawa Islands in Fiji and how climate change has started to impact their education. The time to prepare is now, not right before an emergency. 
No electricity, nothing whatsoever. You are listening to Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared is supported by the Pacific Media Assistance Scheme with funding from the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Any views expressed do not necessarily represent those of PACMAS or the Australian Government. It's produced and distributed in partnership with Radio Australia and networks across the Pacific, including Radio New Zealand Pacific, NBC Papua New Guinea, Palau Wave Radio, Capital FM 107 Vanuatu, FBC Fiji, Samoa National Radio 2AP, SIBC Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation, and TBC Tonga. Part of the aim of this program is to start conversations about disasters. What would you do and how will you prepare for them? We're trying to help you make the next disaster easier for you and your family. My name's Frida Hooper. Please share any information that you've learned today and stay safe. This has been Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared.